Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Kimiana Burke and Tom Green of Excel and Ed tell us how Ohio, Mississippi, and other states are leading the way in implementing research-based literacy policy. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on how attending virtual charter schools affects student achievement in Pennsylvania. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I appreciate that she's pregnant and didn't come out half naked. That was uh, that was good news for me. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please join me in welcoming my special guests for this week, Tom Green and Kimiana Burke, both from Excel and Ed. Tom and Kimiana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Michael. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. It's really, that's right. It's welcome back for Kimiana, uh, who joined us not too long ago to talk about reading. And we're going to talk about reading again, because guess what? Reading is the most important thing. Let me introduce you briefly, though. Tom is Vice President of Advocacy at Excel and Ed. And Kimiana is a senior policy fellow. Uh, and again, both here to discuss some recent policy developments in the world of literacy, as we see these state legislative sessions moving and, and gaining ground, as well as a, a really interesting report about reading in Mississippi, where Kimiana had a lead role uh, when she worked there in the government. And as always, joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. That's a lot of preliminaries to get through. All right, people. Well, hey, uh, like I said, we're here to talk about reading. Let's get to it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Kimiana, let's start with you. Uh, you know, we have all been watching what has happened in Mississippi pre-pandemic and even uh, post-pandemic. Uh, really impressive work there. NAEP scores, uh, dramatic improvement, especially for the most disadvantaged kids, uh, and a lot of attention giving to the state's reading reforms. What's this latest report telling us about Mississippi? Well, the latest report speaks to the effect or the impact of retention. Um, which has been a source of contention, right, for a lot of states uh, that are considering comprehensive early literacy policies should we adopt the retention, promotion retention component. So for the study, the results show that those students in the cohort of 2014-2015 um, who were retained, actually by the time that cohort reached sixth grade compared to the students who were in seventh grade who kind of barely a score above the cut score, it showed that those students had like a 1.2 standard deviation higher than those students in English language arts, right, which is the area that we were focused on, um, than those students who were just promoted um, and did not receive that additional year of supports for those students. So um, I think it just kind of, uh, you know, there's so many studies that talk about how retention is, is such a, a negative thing, but we believe that retention that is the same type of year of course, can be less impactful, but re retention, being very intentional about the supports for students, has shown that it's been um, extremely beneficial to those students in that first cohort. That sounds fantastic. It sounds very similar to a study I think Marty West did years ago on Florida, uh, the retention policies. And yet you're right, it is still the conventional wisdom seems to be that, oh, no, we all know that retaining kids is bad for them. It may be the case when you're talking about uh, middle school or high school students. And, and like you say, is all you do is have somebody repeat the grade, do the same thing that didn't work the first time, have them do it over again. But these policies that are about getting kids the extra help they need, plus 
putting some pressure on the schools to make sure that, you know, not very many kids hit that point, that end of third grade point, uh, and still maybe needing to be retained, seems to show a lot of promise. Uh, well, speaking of which, uh, look, more and more states are trying to get more muscular on the science of reading. Uh, thank you, Emily Hanford and her uh, great podcast for helping to spur that. Uh, but also the lesson of Mississippi, the lesson of Florida. Tom, what's going on uh, around the states and especially in the great state of Ohio, Fordham's home state? Currently, we're tracking 60 bills across 16 states that want to move in this direction of having a comprehensive early literacy policy. We've seen governors, state chiefs, legislators lead on this issue. And if you look at Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine and his state of the state, I mean, he laid out a robust and meaningful proposal to uh, ensure that curriculum is high quality and based in the science of reading ensuring that teachers have the supports that they need through uh, meaningful professional development based in the science of reading. He proposes funding 100 literacy coaches to support teachers in the classroom to ensure that their students are, are getting called up if they're struggling in certain areas. And then he wants to ban three queuing, which is this detrimental practice that we've seen happen across the country that gets kids to guess instead of actually decode and break down the word. I love it that Mike DeWine wants to ban three queuing. You know, other Republican governors are trying to ban critical race theory or uh, you know, African-American studies. I put my vote on what Mike DeWine is trying to ban. That This three queuing thing, which, again, Emily Hanford has, has made uh, famous or at least uh, reminded people outside our ed reform bubble what that is. Having kids guess at words, uh, not effective. You know, interesting to note that, of course, Ohio and Ohio State, specifically home to reading recovery, one of those providers that, that Emily called out for, for encouraging some of these kinds of practices. So this is a big deal that Mike DeWine is willing to take this on. And again, this requirement that state that the districts have to use the science of reading, right? You know, not just encourage, not just support, but that they must do it. Sounds to me a little bit like Colorado's program uh, policy, maybe, uh, that's starting to be implemented there. Are there some other states that are uh, trying to get muscular like this too, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and, and it was interesting too, when you go back to the 2022 gubernatorial campaigns, you saw a lot of governors and candidates for governor run on this issue. Um, it's certainly become one of those issues that are top of mind and something that governors want to lead on. If you look at Arkansas, Governor Huckabee Sanders um, she's introduced her omnibus bill um, that includes reading uh, that's based in the science of reading and other early literacy interventions. You see Governor Lombardo in Nevada uh, wanting to bring back retention for uh, third graders who are not on grade level. That's a hard policy to bring back after it's been rolled back by the previous administration. So a lot of credit to him and his efforts there. And then we, we talk a lot about policy. Implementation is also important, and it's important to protect this policy once it's passed because we see the fruits. We see Mississippi, we see Florida, we see uh, all these great studies. But in Tennessee, there's a lot of conversations about Governor Bill Lee's early literacy uh, law that he pushed in 2020 or in 2021 that is getting a lot of pushback. But he's standing strong, and you know we applaud him for that because it's hard. It's This is a hard one in implementation. Well, it, it is hard. And, and look back to Ohio. You know, Here's a place where uh, you've got lawmakers, uh, Republicans and Democrats, certainly the education groups, all trying to roll back the third grade retention policy there. Again, it's unpopular. Ohio has this terrible history of putting these great policies in place. And then the minute the rubber is going to hit the road and things are going to get tough, 
going to actually take action, they back off. And guess what? That doesn't work so well. David, what's on your mind about all this? Well, I just have a question, which is how many kids are actually getting held back in Mississippi? I mean, what? how much teeth does this thing have? Well, um, in Mississippi, I'll, I'll do just a kind of a rundown. Um, we adopted the approach that we started uh, 2014, 2015 with students having to uh, meet level two or above. We have five levels in Mississippi, minimal, basic, pass, proficient, and advanced, um, level two or above. And in 2015, we had about um, 85% of our students to pass the first time. 87% 2016, I believe 92% 2017, um, and I think like 93% 2018. So as each year, uh, as we progressed through each year, students were being better prepared. Teachers were also better prepared to receive students because they were receiving professional development and literacy coaches and those things. And then 2018, 2019, we increased our level. Our goal is for students to be proficient, but we increased our level from passing at level two then to passing the level three. Um, most recently, I believe our overall um, pass rate may have been 80 or 78% or 87%. I have to look. I think it's 78%. And we normally run about 30,000 kids or so in third grade. Okay. And so is the implication then that all of the kids who are not not passing or getting held back? I mean, in no. practice? No. Okay. That's a great question. And I'm glad you brought that up because most states, many states that have adopted the promotion retention component, there are good cause exemptions. And the good cause exemptions can include those for English learners. Um, students have opportunities to take retests. Um, and then also there are other opportunities like for students who may, who may have an IEP or 504 plan, um, who've also had a couple of years of intervention, that those things are being documented. So there are good cause exemptions for students to ensure that one test on one day is not the final say so as to when students are promoted. Can kids advance if they, for example, if they go to summer school and, and do better uh, by the end of summer? Or is, can you speak to that at all? Well, in Tennessee, for example, they do have written into their they have to they have kind of companion laws. Uh, they have the Tennessee Literacy Success Act and the Tennessee uh, Remediation Learning Loss and Remediation Act. And in the Learning Loss and Remediation Act, it does include opportunities for summer bridge camps for students to attend those camps and then also be promoted um, after that. So when you say summer school, we want to make sure that we're not saying that this is the summer school of old, where students just attend summer school. It's really targeted to uh, reading. It's targeted to interventions. It's based on students' data and making sure that they receive what they need specifically and not just, well, you failed ELA or you didn't pass the test, so you're just going to attend summer school. Um, all of this, I think, is about the approach and the implementation being different from the thinking that we had before, that it's very intentional and deliberate in giving students what they need. Now, Tom, check me on this, but it sounded like the states you were talking about are mostly red states. I guess Nevada's purplish. Um, I mean, do we have any blue states out there that are getting on board with this effort around the science of reading? I hate to think this is going to be another polarized issue. This is truly a bipartisan policy. We have deep blue and deep red states, you know, maybe not in the deep blue states. We haven't seen the type of vocal leadership from the governor's offices and states, but there's certainly interest. And there's been a lot of uh, conversation in some of these states from Oregon to California to Illinois. Um, just last year, Delaware, a Democratic trifecta state, home of the president 
passed a comprehensive early literacy policy signed by a Democratic governor into law the same year that Utah passed their early literacy policy, a deep red state. So this certainly cuts across party lines and in some of the partisanship. Unfortunately, in a few states, this this policy could be viewed as the other party's policy or, or project. That's not effective for students and it's not helpful. And so we're hopeful in a state like Wisconsin that, you know, the governor's vetoed a couple of early literacy bills that he'll change his mind this session if the Republicans in the legislature send him uh, a comprehensive package. So this is this is popular across the board. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but that is super helpful. Again, we've been joined by Tom Green and Kimiana Burke of Excel in Ed. Uh, thanks so much for your great work and for cluing us in on what's happening out there. Hope you'll both come back sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, speaking of shows, uh, how'd you like the halftime show? Uh, you know, I I think Rihanna's got a voice. You know, a lot of pop stars now, I think they just have more like showiness than a voice, but she has a real voice, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I appreciate that she's pregnant and didn't come out half naked. That was, uh, that was good news for me. Um, because I, I, I found myself being able to concentrate on her voice as opposed to her, you know, bare body. Yeah, there you go. Okay. I love it. Uh, David, did you want to uh, have an opinion on this? Yeah. We're talking about the state of the union, right? <laughs> oh, David, David, David. Mike, you know, I, believe it or not, I am actually in the majority you football types like you like to brag that a hundred million people watch the Super Bowl. Do you know how many people there are in the U.S.? <laughs> there are three hundred and thirty million people in the U.S., Mike. That means that two thirds of our readers are in my camp. Uh, see, I am a firm believer that it's good to just participate in the culture. So, I, whatever it is, I watch the State of the Union. I also watch the Grammy Awards. I watch the Super Bowl. I watch the World <laughs> Cup final. David, I'm watching all of it. Okay. We should need more of this in our culture. Equal opportunity watcher. Yes. yes. Well, I think if you want to participate in the culture, Mike, then you, you don't watch the State of the Union anymore. You watch something on Netflix, but yeah. I digress. <laughs> That's probably true. All right. That that part is just for, for my job or my uh, DC wonkiness. All right, Amber. So what you got for us this week? Uh, we have a new study, always have a new study, Sarah Cordes at Temple University. She's a member of our Emerging Education Policy Scholars, by the way. She's looking at long-term outcomes of Pennsylvania charter schools, both brick and mortar and virtual. They call them cyber in Pennsylvania. Specifically, she's looking at achievement, attendance, high school graduation and college enrollment and persistence, which means they stayed enrolled for more than one semester. Uh, she only has data for up to two years following high school graduation, so she can't look at college graduation. Uh, I don't know what I liked about this. We've got lots of studies on achievement, you know, with charters, but not as much on longer term outcomes. You've been complaining about this a little bit, Mike, in, in years prior. Um, and we don't have a ton on virtual charter schools and their relationship to longer term outcomes. So that's also a new little angle here. Okay. Uh, we got roughly 8% of Pennsylvania students are enrolled in charter schools. About a third are enrolled in grades 9 through 12. Half of their charter school high school kids are in urban districts. 32% are in suburban districts. 
and 15% in rural districts. So they're kind of a little more spread out in Pennsylvania than we might anticipate. Uh, Pennsylvania home to the largest cyber charter sector in the country behind California. As of 2020, cyber charters enrolled over 175,000 kids or a little over 2% of their total public school population. Uh, a little more background in Pennsylvania, cyber charters are authorized by the state and brick and mortar by school districts. All right, now a little bit about the sample. It includes all members of the ninth grade cohorts of 2012 and 2013. They had to be enrolled in Pennsylvania public charter schools in eighth grade. They had to have sufficient baseline data. They had to be continuously enrolled in the fall of every year from ninth through 12th grade. And they had to be able to be matched along a number of dimensions in a cell with at least one TPS or traditional student and one charter student. Basically, it's a match cell fixed effect design, means that charter students are compared to TPS students from the same baseline school, same cohort, they have the same race, they have the same gender, they have the same baseline test scores. It's an intent to treat effect, however, because uh, the treatment status is again based solely on enrollment decisions in the fall of ninth grade. So those who enroll after that are in the comparison group. They're going to lose a lot of students this way, but they make a, a lot of effort to say the differences between their sample and the overall population of students in charters. They were small. Their results are robust to other samples and models. And besides that, this is the same methodology that's been used in prior uh, charter studies. And, and Amber, I should just say, though, but we know or we I think we know that there's often a lot of turnover in these virtual charter schools and the cyber charters, people, kids coming in and out. In and out. They still think this is this still works, even though? They still think it works, but they do say there could be some unobservable, unobservable bias, typically the case. Uh, but no, they, they don't. Uh, they basically say that these results for uh, for uh, charter, I mean, virtual charter shouldn't be seen as causal. So that's right, Mike, take it with a take it with a grain of salt. Uh, descriptively, brick and mortar, mortar charter kids are much more likely to be black and economically disadvantaged and eligible for special education services than their TPS peers. They're lower performing. They're more chronically absent. Uh, cyber charter kids more likely to have repeated a grade um, also share similar characteristics as brick and mortar versus TPS students. All right. Now for the outcomes. Uh, brick and mortars first, they have positive or no effects across all outcomes. For instance, they increase algebra scores by 0.04 standard deviation, smaller increases in ELA and biology. They also increase attendance by 1.2 percentage points, and they increase persistence in the short term by making it more likely that students will stay in college for at least two semesters. And uh, this is interesting. They shift enrollment from two to four-year institutions and make it more likely that students enrolled in four-year institutions, about six percentage points are more likely uh, to enroll in the four-year and less likely to enroll in the two-year. Uh, brick and mortar have no effects on high school graduation or post-secondary enrollment. And this will sound familiar. The positive effects that I just ran through are largely concentrated among Black and economically disadvantaged students and students living in urban districts. All results of prior mimic studies. There are slightly negative effects for white students depending on the outcome, but, but not much uh, for white students either way. All right, cyber charters, here we go. On the other hand, associated with worse outcomes on almost all of the measures, 
Students who enroll in charters and the cyber charters, uh, almost 10 percentage points less likely to graduate, nearly 17 percentage points less likely to enroll in college, 15 percentage points less likely to persist in a post-secondary inst institution beyond one semester. The only measure that they had a positive signal on, what do you think? For cyber charters, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Cyber school charter uh, related to a nearly two 1.8 percentage point increase in attendance, 4.5 percentage point decrease in chronic absenteeism. But what counts as attendance in cyber schools is all over the map. What about discipline? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have a measure there. So anyway, I don't know, as we said, I mean, I think it again, the modality of charter schooling matters. We've talked about that before, um, but but kind of cool to see again that these positive effects for kids in um, urban areas for disadvantaged kids has been replicated. We like replication in studies. And, and here we have it again. Yep, that's right. No. And, and across very different policy environments. I don't think anybody would say that Pennsylvania has got the best uh, charter school policies out there, um, you know, but uh, they whatever they've got, it's uh, good enough in those brick and mortar uh, settings to be getting some pretty uh, pretty strong results. So that's good. Now look, these cyber charters. I mean, we have struggled with them all over the country. We certainly struggled with them in our home state of Ohio. Uh, we probably were close at one point to having as many kids in them as Pennsylvania until a few of our big ones uh, went under. In some cases, forced to go under by the state. Uh, it is hard. It's really hard. We, we know these have got to be different kinds of kids that are going into these schools and choosing such a different modality, as you say. That said, it is just hard to find any any evidence that kids are actually learning much once they're enrolled. And guess what? You know, we all went through this experience of remote learning during the pandemic, and it was the same story. I mean, I just I think maybe we learned very few kids are going to learn well over the internet, at least right now. Mike, the pandemic's over. It's time to start hating cyber charters again. <laughs> yeah? Yep. First of all, I think it's important to have some options out there. I mean, I think about the Florida virtual school that's been around a long time. You know, for a kid to take a course or two online, as now is common in higher ed, you know, I don't want to say that that should not be allowed. Look, ideally, we, these would not be charter schools. They would be magnet schools. There would be selective enrollment. You'd have to go through and prove that that you or your kid are a good match for this. Uh, and and if they don't end up doing well or logging on or participating, then you say, look, I'm sorry, you're uh, you know, you're required to go to school. We're going to send you back to a, to a brick and mortar school. Didn't that feel good, Mike? That felt good. Didn't that feel like the truth? <laughs> yeah. That's what you're going for there, David. That's about what I'm going for. I don't know. There's no way forward but through. Um, and. I don't know. It's, I'm sure it will rub some people the wrong way, but we can't lose tens of thousands of kids to, I don't know, ennui, surfing the internet, you know, unsupervised, whatever it is. What You know, who are we kidding here? Look, you have the right in America to homeschool your kid. In some states, there are strings attached to that. Um, in more states, there should be. But it's just nuts to think that we will let at-risk kids continue to fall through the cracks at public expense being served by institutions with terrible track records. Like in what universe is that acceptable? We have to start speaking out on it more often. And like I said, the pandemic's over. So there's, you know, the, there was a, a, a sort of inconceivable rationale for this, inconceivable from the perspective of five years ago for a couple of years th there. But 
you know, it's back. It's it's we got to get back to accountability, and we got to get back to um, you know, you earn it. You earn the right to uh, to educate kids in this setting, just like you do in any other setting. All right, but just keep in mind that these schools will say, and they're right, that hey, we're a public school, we're a charter school. The kid signs up, uh, we can't, you know, we have to take them, even if we think they may not be a good candidate. And if they don't log in, if they don't participate much, in most states, we are not allowed to kick them out. And you know, so that that so we've got to fix that policy as well. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and I, I I think it's incumbent on those institutions to not then lobby against attempts to, you know, impose the sort of requirements that you were advocating for. Um, I'm sure it'll be an uphill, you know, an uphill battle no matter how we approach it. But uh, if that's really the position, then then that that is the logical, you know, corollary of using that as a defense. Ask me what I really think. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, you told us to take it with a grain of salt. I don't think David heard that part. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate the debate. Uh, You guys, honestly, I I can't come down strongly. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm still torn about how we can make improve upon this so that it works better. Like, it's not just about the kids. It's just about like, dang, we bore them to death. You know, when I've when I've sat in on some of these virtual courses and classes, um, they need the, the providers and the operators could be doing a lot better job, too, to make sure that they're interesting and engaging and they're not just having kids click through stuff. Yeah, there, there's obviously a limit to what research can tell us. Some of this is based on intuition and common sense, right? And personal experience. Um, it's it's not common sense to think that fourth and fifth graders or whoever can, uh, you know, can monitor themselves online and and will remain engaged. It, that's not how people work. All right. Well, speaking of which, we don't want to drag on for so long that our listeners don't remain engaged. So we should leave it there. Thank you, Amber. That clearly was uh, something of great interest to us. Yes, yes. But that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.